This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. ending, the Soviet empire is crumbling. In Central Asia, new countries are being born and built from the ruins. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. Allegiances and borders are shifting, overshadowed by the ghosts of ancient empires and old kingdoms. It's exciting times, new histories in the making, and it all needs reporting on. Documentary maker Monica Whitlock visits the Bureau of Lost Culture to tell some of the stories of her life and times as a foreign correspondent from the years when she worked for the BBC. And what stories they are. Painting a picture of a world in transformation. Lost caskets of silver, Polish cemeteries in the Uzbek desert, miniature paintings made on matchboxes and gulags, state murder, and a last desperate dash across the runway, fleeing accusations of terrorism. I'm Stephen Coates, and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I was always entranced by the voice of the foreign correspondents coming through the radio from what often seemed like impossibly exotic remote parts of the world, reporting on front lines and strange wars and incomprehensible distant cultures. But what is the nuts and bolts, the daily life of a foreign correspondent? And how do you become one? What do you do when you are one? Well, Monica's here to tell us, punctuated by a few fragments of the vast collection of field recordings she has collected over the years. Like most radio documentary makers, she seems more comfortable behind the microphone collecting other people's stories rather than in front of it, telling her own. So I had to coax her to be here. I'm very glad that I made it. And here she is. Hello, Monica. Hello. So, Monica, I wanted to just read you something about your time in Uzbekistan. This is you speaking back in the day. We've been in Uzbekistan for so long. The only international broadcaster to set up there in the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed and Uzbekistan became a country. In those days, we worked from a little house on Ulitsa Ivlova Street, Famous amongst the tiny band of journalists and others who were drawn to Central Asia. There were always guests, a lunch for anyone who dropped in, sometimes even people camping in the garden. Communications were so poor that the whole office sometimes took it in turns for hours raising a dialing tone on the phone. Long, hot nights were lost trying to send a fax, waiting anxiously for acknowledgement that it got through. And all because in this fascinating, unknown land, 
every story was fresh and new. No press releases, no press back, just amazing solitary journeys, up mountains and through deserts to report real news. Does that take you back a bit? Makes me shiver. Yeah, it does. And I mean, it's put very, you know, there was a lot of emotion that we all felt, I think, at that time. As I think, as you said, that was the, the moment in which we closed the Bureau in Central Asia. Uh, but yes, it was exactly like that. It was the most incredibly fun, stimulating, exciting, challenging post that you could imagine. Uh, huge territory. Um, our main office was in Tashkent in Uzbekistan. But we had offices also in uh, Almaty in Kazakhstan uh, and in Tajikistan with some forays into Turkmenistan. That was much more difficult, very closed country. Uh, Kyrgyzstan across the border into Western China and down to Afghanistan. So it was an enormous, fabulous patch where all the countries connected and all the cultures and languages yeah. connected. Um, and very un... Very unreported in a way and I don't mean that in a, in a romantic sense that somehow that's a good thing I don't, I don't think it's a good thing but that news wasn't highly processed so you could find interesting original things and meet mm. wonderful people all the time without there being a, some sort of news machine guiding right it yeah away. yeah for sure I mean it's quite interesting I'm just looking at it a sort of aerial shot of it here and it's an interesting part of the world it's a world that I don't know anything about at all and for somebody who's listening you can't picture it it's if you imagine Russia as it is, and then head south as though you're heading towards Afghanistan. In between Russia and, and, and Afghanistan, there's this kind of family, almost like a family of smallish countries, Kazakhstan, as you said, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, reaching over towards uh, Tibet and China on one side and over towards the Black Sea on the other. And uh, a lot of them landlocked, right, including Uzbekistan, I Yeah, think. double landlocked, they're very... Double well, landlocked. You'll hear that a lot of times. <laughs> Double landlocked. And then, yeah, if you look, think towards the west, and uh, Turkmenistan touches Iran, has a big mm. land border with Iran. So mm. it's, a, it's a sort of spectrum and a continuum of languages and, and, and places and cultures and geographies. And it feels like a kind of remote, or certainly even looking at the map, it feels like a remote part of the world still, even in these days. Is that right, you think? Yes. I mean, I kind of struggle with the world remote in a way because who's remote is it anyway um <laughs> not remote if you're living there well remote from what <laughs> uh but it's certainly somewhere where technology arrived rather later than than in many countries well also i mean you, as you said in that piece that i read there i mean those i think all of those uh, states or countries as they are now they were all once part of the soviet union Yes. Sort of got absorbed into Russia in the what the nineteenth century or something, did they? Because they I mean they would originally been separate places. Yes. Kind of got sucked into the kind of Russian Empire, right? And then they became Soviet states, is that right? Yes. Well it was a bit of a process. So the northern countries were absorbed into the Russian Empire earlier, and the southern countries bordering Afghanistan much less so. So it wasn't the Amir of Bukhara, which was the, the kingdom on the border of Afghanistan. He didn't fall until twenties with with the Soviet Revolution and and the post revolutionary wars that was when those countries uh, became Soviet states and became countries with the names that we know now. Right. So all those names like Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, they're all new ideas. Before you would have had emirates, kingdoms. So the names that you would have known are Kokand, the Kingdom of Kokand, Bukhara, three kingdoms next to each other. 
and then steppe, which is what we'd call Kazakhstan now mm. and Kyrgyzstan. So you have a mixture of people who lived in cities, really ancient cities, and people who lived uh, in, a, in a less settled and more livestock-based existence in enormous territories outside. Mm. And I think because people don't know very much about the Central Asian countries and you know, that's just a quirk of history, really. Imagine them all to be really tiny, but they're not at all tiny. No. They're, you know, the whole mass, if you know, I think it's something like 2,000 kilometres from Tajikistan to Russia. It's just, this mm. is really massive, large, massive large places. Yeah. <laughs> and the array of landscapes is just fabulous. Mm. So you have amazing mountains and you have desert and, um, you know, it's a, a constant, beautiful, changing and one of the things that you said in that piece, though, which are, which is interesting, is is that after the fall of the Soviet Empire, so effectively Uzbekistan, in a way, you were for a lot, lot of that time as a foreign correspondent, it was having to invent itself, wasn't it, as a new country? It was sort of set up those things, you know, currency and systems and all that stuff, yes. sort of in complete independence, whereas before it had been sort of semi-dependent, sort of autonomous, but kind of not. Well, it was a republic inside the Soviet Union. So all the constituent republics of the Soviet Union then became countries. And so I guess when we opened the Bureau and then when I was working there in the early 90s, um, there were lots of things in play. Sort of what does it mean to be a country? How should our borders be? What should our flag look like? What currency do we need? What language shall we speak? What language shall our children speak? Do we need people to buy visas to come to us or not? You know, should business people come or not? Very exciting and times, Incredibly right? exciting. And, and, you know, there's everything to play for, really. Mm. You know, who should control the money? I mean, you're talking about a command economy. You know, you had enormous factories, for example, in Uzbekistan. I visited some, which to a kind of naive Western person looked just like nothing else I'd ever seen. So there was a metals factory near Tashkent where completely built along Soviet lines. Soviet line, so enormous workshops, just vast. They made electronics and huge workforce. Nobody was being paid because that had gone and the hmm. new way of doing things hadn't come, but people were still going to work. Uh, but then they'd also had, there was a clinic, there was a, a mosque, hmm. there was uh, a synagogue, a church, a nursery, uh, a maternity unit, uh, a, a people's uh, arts complex. All in that kind of Soviet sort of way. Yeah, but all in this ground. And so, and that the idea of working there would be something you would do all your life and mm. would your whole family would be mm. involved in some way or another and it was a whole lifestyle. And that lifestyle was just imploding. It would have been part of this much bigger economy, the Soviet Empire economy. And then, of course, the empire falls and then these places are independent. So they've got these, say, vast factories making fridges or something for the entire Soviet Union. And then it's like, what, what happens next, right? People were coming to work anyway, even though they were not making money, because it's better to stay on the books than not, maybe. And people were making swords for a production of Hamlet that they were going to put on for themselves. It's like coming to the edge of a cliff and, you know, what do you do? What yeah. should we do? Where shall we go? Mm. And although that sounds alarming, and it is alarming, it's really alarming, but there was also a real buzz, you know, mm. it was exciting. And people were going abroad for the first time, some people. I mean, you still at that point, and until very, very recently, had to have a special paper in order to leave the country, because that was the Soviet thing. Right, an exit visa. Exit visa, which is still a thing in many countries. 
Uh, but foreigners were really exciting and people would just come up to you and talk to you because you were foreign and that was thrilling. And foreign stuff, anything you had that was foreign was exciting. Like if you went to stay at somebody's house and you had a bottle of shampoo and it was empty, they'd keep the bottle and put it up in their bathroom, a foreigner's shampoo, because it just looked so lovely and bright mm, and mm. and there was a real warmth and innocence and uh, excitement really about that time. As time wore on, the office expanded. We reported in Uzbek, in Russian, in Persian, Kazakh and Kyrgyz, as well as English. Um, we moved to a bigger place with phones that worked nearly all the time, except, of course, when it snowed. But our spirit remained. Lunch stayed central to the workings of BBC Tashkent. Around our now huge kitchen table sat 10, 15 people or more chatting in an assortment of languages. Who were they all? We were not always sure. Someone's cousin, someone's child, an Afghan poet, a musician who'd been banned... From time to time, one would leap up and chase out the swallows who tried without success, tried with success to nest in the office year after year. Visitors from the wider BBC were surprised by the Tashkent office. They were not quite sure what to make of the place, but they always succumbed to its grace and gentleness. Our drivers, who would bargain them down, not up. The intense sunshine, the friendliness and the kindness. Your next paragraph starts with, it's all over now. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, it's so terrible! <laughs> but it, it, that is kind of how it works. But let's circle back. I mean, the idea of a foreign correspondent is a romantic one for me. You know, you hear it on the radio, these voices from distant, remote, inverted commas, places. So how did you get there? I mean, how did you get to Uzbekistan? But how did you get to becoming a foreign correspondent? Well, I tried very hard to join the BBC, particularly in radio news, international radio news, because I love the radio and I love the news. And, um, and I got a job as a freelancer in BBC World Service newsroom. Um, and it was at a time in the late 80s when the world was changing with amazing speed in front of our eyes. You know, the Ceausescu's were falling in Romania. The Soviet Union was in its last days. The Soviets had pulled out of Afghanistan. And the news was just incredibly exciting every day. And Bush House Newsroom was, was an absolute powerhouse. You know, obviously it's 24-hour news, but also broadcasting in lots of languages. It was really thrilling. Um, and so I was delighted to get that and quite very soon was made a member of staff. Um, and like everybody in my intake, uh, we wanted to be foreign correspondents. We wanted to go overseas. We wanted to, you know, report the news. Um, and so we'd compete for jobs. Jobs would come along and, and you'd, you'd go for them and have an interview. And then, you know, if you were lucky, you got the post. And were you interested in that part of the world even then? Yes, I was interested. I think I was interested in the Soviet Union. Everybody was because it was just about to finish. And all these countries were just popping up out of nowhere, that, you know, seemingly to our naive view. You know, countries we'd never heard of, like Moldova mm. or <laughs> Azerbaijan or Armenia. I mean, there had been Russia watchers, of course, who knew everything. Um, but to my generation, these seemed like completely new places. I mean, what could be more exciting than that, than all these uh, new capital cities of, of new <laughs> countries? And, and suddenly... 
you could see them you know you could you could feel them you could those people would appear we'd see quotations on on news wires and people you know it just seemed the world was changing with amazing speed it was like shifting from black and white to color so many many people are my friends we're just really interested in this changing phenomenon and then another reason was that uh, at that time the soviet troops had left afghanistan and uh, the revolution had long happened in iran as you mm. know so 10 years before or more um and so that was a really changing part of the world and a friend of mine got the job as the Kabul correspondent um and i went with her and at that point in the bbc you could do a thing called a duty trip which was you just go somewhere and then you come back and talk about it. I mean, it seems astonishing now, but people <laughs> did do that. And it was amazing. You could go. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. <laughs> so they pay you to go somewhere, you, then you go there, and then you come back and just talk about it? Yeah, well, you'd make a few those, features and things. Those were the days. Yeah, but you'd make a few features, or, or especially somewhere where. Uh, you know, nobody had been for a while, and then you come. There was a there was a great feeling of thirst for knowledge. I mean, this mm. is pre-internet, and so somebody coming back from somewhere like Mongolia, you know, it would be scheduled that they were going to talk about it, and then and everybody would come along, and you you talk about Mongolia, and and uh, people would ask questions, and yeah, it does seem astonishing now, but it was a far more sort of communal sense of knowledge. I think I went to Pakistan, I went to Peshawar, and we crossed the border into Kabul. And it was a real moment of change because the Mujahideen government was coming out of the hills down into the city and you just felt this crisis and excitement of change. Um, and I made some features and things. And I was really fascinated. Features meaning that you were collecting stories rather than news, yeah. so you were meet, meeting interesting people. Because that's the other thing, I mean, just, be, just before we go on, because, yeah. I mean, you know, you describe yourself as a radio producer and stuff, but you re I mean, you always seem to be, you're a sort of story collector, really, aren't you? Yes, and radio's all about that. Mm. Okay, so you, you go into Kabul and you start collecting stories, which become features. Yeah, and on the way, you have a tape recorder. Naturally, you just bump into somebody and, and record them. Um, and also record a lot of natural sound. And those skills are the same now. Absolutely. I mean, the technology is smaller, but not that much smaller. <laughs> it's, you know, the thing that I carry now is not so different. Uh, so then, yeah, I made a few features in Kabul. And I was really interested in the, the people who were turning up and who would then become the new administration. And they were all, they were coming from north. So there were Uzbeks and Tajiks and... I'd never heard of those people, mm. and I thought how interesting they were. And then with the Soviet Union falling to pieces, there were the countries as well. And suddenly the whole map was erupting, the geography of the was erupting. The world that we knew was completely changing. Right, so the cities are like these kind of pinpoints, but the borders are shifting as well, right? Everything is changing. You know, we knew nothing about the Soviet Union. I mean, there's, sometimes there would be a grey face on the but no feeling of life behind that, mm. unless you were an academic or a specialist in Russia who was keenly studying the wires and, and understanding every nuance about what TASS was saying. Or, But we weren't like that. Also, I mean, the, even the way you describe it then, it's, it sounds so vivid and colourful, whereas the image yes. projected of the Soviet Union in the West, which of course is, you know, Cold War propaganda from this side was was grey. I mean, if you th if my image of the Soviet Union in the sixties is black and white, yes, right? 
Yes, and I think it was a moment of change, but it's not just a moment of change in the geography. It was a change in our perception mm. of suddenly realizing there were loads of people that, and loads of places and things that 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 you hadn't ever seen. You'd never seen a photograph of Georgia, right? And that's really exciting. And and I can't remember when it came out, but do you remember the film Letter to Brezhnev? Mm-hmm. There's there's a really uh, sort of enlightening moment in that when when the the girl the, who's British describes how how she thought that that all of Russia must be snowing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the idea that there were countries where it's forty degrees in the summer and then grapes dripping off the vines into your lap and <laughs> you know um, apricots growing wild and goats trotting down the street that's just not in that map of grey and it, it's not and that was all very thrilling and also politically exciting because there were dozens of factions and squabbles and wars and front lines along streets that you'd never heard of and towns being blockaded that you'd never heard of so you're right there just at the moment when I bathing in all this stuff so when did it become formalized when did you end up on the station you know as the the bbc's correspondent for that part of the world right well i wasn't the first correspondent uh chris bowers he was the first correspondent now he'd been the Kabul correspondent he had realized the potential in the former soviet union in the south and he set up he found that little house in eve liver and then there was one other correspondent alan johnston who who followed chris and then i followed alan the jobs come around every couple of years and people say, who wants to have a go at this? Uh, and you say yes. And then you get lucky and then you have your suitcase. <laughs> so you've got a suitcase, your tape recording, your microphone. So you, so you land, you, you, you go to Tashkent, fly, I'm assuming you fly, flew to you Tashkent. Fly, so, yeah. and you were allowed to take 50 kilos of luggage. And right. 15 of that was a satellite <laughs> phone. Right. If you were taking a new one. I inherited the one from Alan. Right. So you turn up at the little house on the street mm-hmm. and there's a handover of some sort, is there, from the previous correspondent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a nice few days together. Right. And introduces you to some some of the locals and some of the people who are going to end up sitting around your lunch table. Yes. There was a lovely family who, of course, we're still very good friends with, both Alan and I, um, who were working in the office as office manager. At that time in, in, in Central Asia, and to an extent still now, I think, you couldn't do anything by yourself because mm. everything was so complicated to do. You couldn't just set up. Making a phone call was quite complicated, let alone paying the phone bill or going to the market and all the things that make up life. You took a, took a lot of people to do that. And that was very nice in that we had this sort of sense of community, really. Um, and it was a very solid and loyal community, all, all the people of whom, and we're talking about early 90s, we're all still in touch with each other. I got a text yesterday from um, uh, uh, my friend who was the office manager then. Right, so there's a there's a sort of there's some formally employed people, but then there's also around them there's a kind of there's a ring or there's a kind of family or kind of community which yes. are in different ways are supporting what you're there to do yes. and helping you, yes. helping you interact with the kind of wider population, yes. and then also, I, I assume in some way feeding in stories right as well. So I mean, you, once you'd got settled in and Alan had left and it's you, he's gone, you've seen him off and it's you, you're there. What what do you do? How does it go? 
I mean, I have to think back, really, but I think with that week with Alan, we thought about a few things that I might do after he'd gone. He introduced me, I went to some embassy parties and things, I think, and he introduced me to one or two people. And I think there was a, a story that was just about to happen almost immediately. Um, and I think it was peace talks in Kyrgyzstan, I think it was. So that was already like a ready-made thing to do. Right, so your first story's set up, sort of. Mm -hmm. That's going to kind of break you in gently, right. as it were. Uh, and then you do it. You have to travel to... Is that, mm. is that what happens? I mean, tell, yes. how did you report that story? Yes, tell you that. go to wherever it is. Mm. Every day, there's a small group of you and you ring each other up and you say, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, well, if you manage to speak to so-and-so, let me know. And we share information. In the other capitals, you have stringers. So I had, I think, three stringers who are people, local journalists, who you give a retainer to, and they will tell you something that's happening in their area. They're not under pressure to do that every day, but you do try to file every day. Right, so they're employed effectively at a distance by the BBC. They kind of freelance people who are on a, on a small-ish kind of uh, fee, you know, to, to feed stuff into you, and if you go to those places to help you. Yes. The family working in the house, we always try to keep a real separation between work and household because we didn't want to compromise anybody in any way. So say we wanted to go and interview some oppositionist, it wouldn't be fair on the family if they knew that. So if anybody had been taken in for questioning, they would be able to say with total honesty, I don't know who they met in that building. And that was really important. We had a real distinction there. Right, because actually, I suppose this is the background and this is what emerges later at the sort of end of that time for you is, is that it's quite a tense time as well, isn't it? I mean, apricots and the trees and olives and wonderful stuff and goats running in the street and these lovely people, but also, politically, there's some pretty heavy stuff going on, isn't there? So the stuff time. which you need to re be reporting on. So you're saying that you have to be very careful that you don't, that any of the people who are helping you don't get sort of tarred, as it were, yes. by the flavour of your reports if they're critical of the government or the authorities. Well, not only way. that, it's at, a, it's at a much deeper level than that. Our house was wired for sound all the time. My phone was wired. All you, my phones... Being bugged, you mean? Yes. Which meant that it's not just how you report, it's who you have a conversation with, who you might be trying to reach on the phone, what you might want to say to them. It's not just about what you broadcast, it's about who you know. And so it would be compromising to anybody in all innocence if they're just em employed to cook the lunch f for people to know the sort of people you're talking to. So you have to keep that separation because it would be perfectly possible for somebody at that time to be asked in and questioned about who you talked to on the phone, what they'd said, where they were, were you going to meet them, what was going to happen. I mean, what you broadcast was the tip of the iceberg. Mm. I mean, with all foreign correspondence posts, what you know and what you broadcast mm. are two completely different creatures. And that's kind of the difference between what we'd call fireman reporting where you quickly go somewhere and you don't necessarily have this sort of uh, iceberg under under the visible sea of knowledge you just really are reporting something that's happening right now fast right 
But if you're based somewhere, you accumulate enormous amount of understanding and contact and conversation and detail that you're never going to broadcast. Because it's useful background for when when a story erupts in some way, but it's not necessarily the stuff that you would file every day. So 90% of the conversations you have are not on record. It's about understanding. And so when something does happen, you understand what it means, or you understand who would understand what it means. So a little wiggle in the canvas of what's going on that would pass you by if you don't have that understanding. You immediately see the setting Mm. of what it might mean. Something happening in Samarkand, for instance. So you've 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 been alerted to it by one of your people there. You say you might be interested in this moniker. This is what's going on. So you tr- you travel there, meet your stringer. Well, f- your first thing will be: is it is this a my priority of the day? You certainly note it, but because you've got this bedrock be- bedrock of knowledge underneath, you think, ha, Samarkand. So that's exactly the same part of Samarkand that that demonstration was in last April. So. That's the same guy that X, Y, Z. So you've got an understanding, first of all. And because of your understanding, although you're not going to reveal it, you can write your dispatch in a way that's got meaning and is interesting to people. A dispatch is this sort of daily report that you send back to the BBC. You make a phone call via your satellite phone and you effectively speak your report. And that's the dispatch, right? That's the dispatch. So... You get up in the morning and you call all your people. You've already probably got an idea in your head what you're going to be after today, that that may be derailed suddenly. You're under pressure to file. There's a sense inside you that unless you filed, you can't relax at all. In fact, you're never relaxed. And you've got to, you're ahead in time because you're ahead of London. Right, they're getting up here when you've already filed your report. You're already there, you're comfortable, you've Mm. got your, your story. And somebody here receives your dispatch, listens to it, analyses it, logs it in some way, and then if they're interested in taking it further for some reason, they then they immediately get back to you, do they, or respond in some way and say, well, we want more of this, this is an important story? Or So say you're working on the intake desk, which is a 24-hour staffed desk in the centre of news, and you're taking all the incoming stuff, uh, and you're across all the stories and watching all the time what's going on in the world. So if I see there's been a big arms dump explosion in Samarkand, I might ring you and say, Stephen, it's Monica. I've heard this thing going off in Samarkand. Um, I think it might be something. I'll file you a few lines now if you're interested. Um, And then I'll go there and uh, see how things stand this afternoon. And you say, yeah, sounds good. This is optimal conversation. (laughs) Uh, And then I do, and it's interesting. And we take it from there. So a story might come into the headlines. uh, And then you're filing all the time because the news changes. And then so presumably, you know, days, you know, if you're lucky or not lucky, depending on how you look at it, days might go by when everything's quite nice and calm and you're filing your dispatches, but nothing much is going on. And then something kicks off and something gets very intense. Was that what it's like? That you were sort of in bursts of intense, dramatic stuff uh, punctuated by longers? Well, you make sure that you use those long guys really well. So you're always planning, planning, planning. 
Um, if it's quiet, you can set up the kind of story that will do well at the weekends. So anything to do with, I mean, I have a weakness for stories about buried treasure, archaeology, hidden manuscripts, lost diaries, anything like that. But obviously on a busy news day and you ring up and you say, I've got the programme, you know, I've got a nice story here about a buried gold goblet in the sand. You know, you're going to look like an idiot. It looks, you know, if people are listening to the news on the intake desk, you should know that it's all kicking off somewhere else. So right, shut it's going to be embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you would never do that. <laughs> right. But what you do is you prep all those stories, and they're lovely stories to do, and then you keep them for the weekends. Give us your story about the silver. It's quite a funny story. Um, and actually it came to light because I'm at the moment digitising my archive. I've got just tons and tons and tons of stuff to this really I did find yesterday. It's a letter from a British lieutenant who deposited in the bank a case of silver. Um, and it lists what was in the case. And it says, one silver tray, 12 silver cups for champagne, one silver vase with cover, one silver table center, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, this silver belonged to the Amir of Bukhara. And in his flight from Bukhara, um, during the Russian Revolution, the governess to his children took this box of silver and she was rescued by a young British lieutenant called Stephen Fox. And Stephen Fox took this took this box of silver for her and he took it on a, the ship that was evacuating and got to Devonport and he put it in the bank in, at Lloyd's. So I came across this story through something actually which, which was in the Tashkent evening paper um, that they'd heard about this box and all the names were changed of course. Um, Why? Well because they'd been misunderstood like Stephen's wife's name was Gladys and that doesn't work well in Uzbek so, but anyway I figured it out. Uh, and then I rang Lloyd's, and it did seem that that box of silver was still there in the bank because the Amir of Bukhara had never called for it. I mean, naturally, because he'd fled to Kabul, where he died. So it was probably a gift, probably from the Emperor of Russia. But still, it's kind of fun, and 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 particularly fun to think that actually it was still in the bank in Devonport. <laughs> Devonport. Yeah. So I was quite into it. And then next time I was in the UK, I went to the British Library and I found numerous documents, which were letters from the bank manager <laughs> to the lieutenant, to the India office, to the embassies, in to, to representatives in Delhi, trying to get this letter from Devonport to Kabul so that that Amir could sign the letter saying that they could open the box, which never happened. So as far as I know, it's there still. It's still there in Devonport, is it? Yeah, I think oh. so. So when I did that story, the local radio in Devon, they rang up and they really wanted to do it too, and it all became a thing. So there was always stuff like that. Right, so you sort of banked those stories. So for, for quiet times, you can sort of bring them out, right? about Tashkent is that 
all kinds of people have come through in the past. I mean, Tashkent was the biggest Soviet city east of the Urals. And it was where a lot of people ended up from different parts of the Soviet Union for different reasons, especially during the war and after the war in those years. And also after the death of Stalin, when the uh, prison camp, where a lot of people came out of prison camps, especially if they were, had been imprisoned in Central Asia, which was a common thing, especially Kazakhstan. They know it had head for Tashkent. And it became a sort of alternative home for many people. You know, it was just really unpressured and nice and sunny and, and more relaxed and, and, and private. Far from central control, right? Very well. far from central control. So you, so you had writers and you had musicians and filmmakers and uh, all sorts of sort of intellectual and interested people who found Tashkent just much more amenable. Either they'd been sent into exile and, and then never came home again or just sort of drifted south. And that happened a lot. Uh, including art collections, famous art collections, huge, beautiful art collections, which are held in the desert in, in Uzbekistan. Uh, Solzhenitsyn was in Tashkent. He wrote Cancer Ward in Tashkent. And you can, if you read Cancer Ward again, you'll see there's lots of very beautiful, vivid descriptions of trees and plants and things that's just pure Tashkent. Right. And um, wasn't it Mikhail Bulgakov's... His wife? Yeah, his wife, Elena, she took the manuscript of Mark, uh, Master and Margarita and she hid it in Tashkent. Right, and that's how it sort of survived, right? Yes. Amazing. Yeah, really amazing. So there's that whole other kind of surprising history in Tashkent. Mm. And some of the paintings that, that survived and drawings are really astonishing and you won't find them anywhere else. That What comes to mind is a series of matchbox paintings done in women's prison camps in Siberia tiny tiny done with uh, charcoal on on the backs of match packets minute showing scenes of daily life smuggled out of the the, the camp and rescued by the art collector who took them to Uzbekistan and they're there now you can see them mm. and that, you know that's an astonishing thing something i didn't wasn't just not aware of in that part of the world is how ancient the civilization and the culture were you know, it's near to Persia, near to Iran, near to all that thing. It, I mean, it went back a very, very long way. So there's all that kind of layers of time Absolutely. and culture there, Absolutely. weren't there as well? Very ancient cities. The city of Hebra, the city of Bukhara, they're landmarks throughout history. And, you know, they're desert oasis cities that follow the big rivers that run through Central Asia. And they're really like the fulcrum of, of culture. It was the centre of the world. Centre of the world. Centre mm. of some people's worlds. Mm. Um, and, you know, founts of mm. learning and art and creativity and music mm. and science and medicine in particular. So, All sorts of people were coming to Tashkent for all sorts of reasons. But one of the things that you told me about the other day was that you stumbled across, and were slightly puzzled by it first, these cemeteries for Polish people. So why and how did they get there? What was their story? That is an amazing story, and it sort of preoccupied me for about 20 years. All over Central Asia there are these tiny little Polish graveyards and Polish people. And the reason that they're there is because at the very beginning of the Second World War, when Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union were allied, Soviet troops went into Poland just after German troops did. They deported hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people from eastern Poland to Siberia because at that time Poland was an enemy state to the Soviet Union. So 
they weren't just fighting people. There were uh, families, whole families, villages taken on trains and sent to Siberia where they worked in camps. There's probably about a million and a half people. It's phenomenal the scale. Later on, when when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, of course, all that allegiance changed. And so the Poles had become allies of the Soviets. And so they released them. So the people who had survived staying in uh, logging camps and, and other kinds of labor camps um, then made their way out of the Soviet Union through Central Asia. And they got on boats on the Caspian and sailed to Iran. Now, only about 150,000 people came out the other end. So cholera, typhoid, starvation, murder, all sorts of reasons. There are lots and lots of Polish graveyards in Central Asia. Yeah, another sort of devastating Soviet story. of people, you know, these displaced people, internal emigres, the original natives, as it were, mixing up with intellectuals and bohemians. And um, you knew, I think one of them was uh, Mark Vile, wasn't it, who you knew, the theatre director. Tell us about him. He was from a Russian family who had lived in Uzbekistan for a long time. He was really fascinated in the history of Tashkent and he made a film. The End of an Era, in fact. Yeah, it's called yeah. The End of an Era and it's a beautiful film and it, it captures on films lots of things that aren't there anymore, like old mosques in the old part of Tashkent and their congregations. They were often demolished and uh, he would resolutely try to make a last record of those things. Um, and he also ran a, a theatre, which is still there, called the Ilkhom Theatre, which did all kinds of progressive, multi-language, interesting, avant-garde plays, um, and very unusual. Um, Mark was murdered. don't think anybody really knows why. Yeah, he was stabbed, wasn't he? In, he was in, in the stairwell of his apartment. There were all sorts of theories about why and whether it was connected to the, to the drama theatre or the play that he was putting on, or the justice system in Uzbekistan is not very precise. Um, but he was a dearly loved person mm. and he represented a sort of um, progressive, avant-garde, interesting, multicultural side of Tashkent which has felt itself more and more compressed over recent years. Right, and uh, you've got those two themes, you know, the intellectual, the bohemian, avant-garde theatre, etc., and art, the arts and this ancient culture intertwined with this much darker, heavier stuff and uh, rather oppressive I mean, the uh, the first president, um, Islam Karimov, I mean, he'd been the Soviet boss, hadn't he? He just, he just sort of moved over, as it were, and uh, he was there until a few years ago, wasn't he? 2016, I think. But you weren't, and we have to circle back to the rather dramatic and rather sad uh, end of your time there. Here you are writing about it later. Next spring, the swallows will build their nest in peace. Our staff have scattered all over the world. Ordinary people who've been with the Bureau from the first days have rolled up their lives into suitcases, bulging with knives and forks, quilts and pans. They're starting their lives all over again. 
But reporting is not just about bureau. It's about telling the stories that need to be told, whatever it takes to do that. So we will continue to report on Uzbekistan. And as soon as we can, we'll be back in the country. You left in a terrible rush, Monica, didn't you? Mm. And why? Tell us that story. We had to close the bureau in Uzbekistan because there was a story which broke in um, an eastern town called Andijan in 2005. And uh, every trial in Uzbekistan ended in guilty. There was no such thing of, as not being guilty. If you were in trial, you would be found guilty. And a group of business people, uh, they were on trial for some quite trivial thing, if I remember. And they decided to fight back. They fought the case. They organised a demonstration to stand outside the courthouse uh, to draw attention to what they saw as the absurdity of the trial. Hundreds and hundreds of people came and stood outside, and they stood in complete silence outside the courtroom, and they stood day after day after day after day, and it was very odd for Uzbekistan. Um, and they thought about it in great detail, that they were not going to break any law, so they didn't block the highway, they didn't leave any litter, they were super punctilious, nobody shouted, they didn't have any placards, they just stood there in complete silence in best clothes. And then at lunchtime, somebody would bring out a, ba a basket of homemade things and everybody would eat lunch. And then, they'd... And then after about 100 days, something went wrong and there was a prison break in that city. And the demonstrators and people from the prison all went to the main square and there was a standoff between the mayor's office and the people in the square. And at some point, the army came in and shot a certain number of people. It was extremely difficult to report accurately. It was a very fast-moving, confused situation. But we were, of course, obliged to report as best we could. I mean, whenever you look back, I think at stories like that, you think, oh, if only I'd done this, if I'd known that, if I'd contacted so-and-so. And we couldn't avoid the fact that people had been shot. And, of course, the authorities in Uzbekistan didn't like that because it, it hadn't been on Uzbek television or, or anywhere. It was suppressed and it became a big world story. And there was a couple of famous incidents, like there were three journalists who were shot at and um, it was wild. Um, and in the morning, I was in Tashkent by then, I didn't stay in and They were burying bodies in the flower beds in the square. And it was as though nothing had happened and there was no... I think the thing that really stays with me is that there was no address to the nation or, or any, any. it was just like that didn't happen. Nothing was ever explained and everybody had to stay in their house and people were absolutely terrified. But we certainly met people who said that their young men of their family were killed after this. So after the demonstration had gone, after the demonstrators had either been killed or scattered or gone, that people would come to the house at night and take away the young people. I mean, that atmosphere was awful. Uh, and we knocked on several courtyard doors and, you know, Uzbek houses arranged around a courtyard. A woman showed me her son's clothes full of holes. She said he'd gone to buy bread. Anyway, we just did try to report 
as well as possible, but it was a very fraught situation. Uh, government first reports said that eight people had been killed. I mean, just just clearly, clearly wasn't true. Helicopters circle Andijan as residents emerge from their houses after the violence. Father Hannah, local. I saw them washing the blood away from the roads. It was such a terrible smell I couldn't stay there very long. I don't know what happened to the bodies and where they took them. You say? Father Hans describing what he saw as he walked through the park, a full kilometre away from the main square where the shooting happened on Friday. Like most people, he's horrified and confused by what happened. Some residents are still looking for their missing relatives. This 50-year-old man was out searching for his son. The man says, I don't know if he's alive or dead. I want to tell the whole world. Karimov's people shot women and children. I saw young men with their hands up shouting, shouting, don't shoot, but they just shot them. And you said, the leaders of the demonstration sat praying in the mayor's office in the square as troops moved in and shot for almost three hours. President Karimov says that here on state television that a group of Islamic terrorists seized the town centre and drew a huge crowd around them as a living shield. These people are criminals, not protesters. And then you said, um, it's hard to believe what's become of Andijan. Only last week this was a cheerful, lively place full of bustle and noise where many people were not afraid to stand up and speak out. Now it's quiet and sad and it's hard to see how the city can recover. Well, in fact, uh, you didn't really recover either, did you? Um, Because what happened next is after you'd filed the report and the world's attention turned on Uzbekistan, you were forced to leave and the BBC was forced to leave. And in fact, they tried to block it for a while, right? You said they tried to block it, but they couldn't stop it. So someone night after night pushed printed pages from the BBC News website under people's door in Adijan. With a soft warning knock, they disappeared. In Tashkent, people who never thought twice about politics sat huddled around radios in the evening, craning to hear every story on the BBC. Word spread from street to street and anger grew. Anger about the killings, anger about the scale of what many saw as a huge official lie. I think, you know, the the thing with that, which is, of course, these days is so important, isn't it? It's just the power of... The BBC, you know, the, the value yeah. of that, being able to actually still reach those people despite what the government's trying to do. And this is just before every soul in the world had a mobile phone. So you would expect there to be loads of digital footage. 2005, people did, but not in Uzbekistan. Foreign Ministry summoned you, said, and read out a prepared statement accusing me of complicity with terrorists, and they made it clear that I had to leave quickly. Yeah. A day later, I was gone. Yeah. And the unravelling of the Bureau began. That's all true. It sounds frightening and also, you know, devastating. I mean, you'd made your home in this place. You've described it, uh, you know, so beautifully. You obviously loved it. Um, You had many friends there, the people who worked with you and for you. You're a child. Um, And then suddenly, that's it. You've got to go. Yes, it was really bad. I can even find it difficult even now to think about that 24 mm-hmm. hours. So, yeah, I picked up my son from nursery and then we never went home again. Uh, we went to the house of a diplomat and then uh, we flew out to Istanbul with some members of Bureau. Uh, different decisions were made about different members of our extensive team. So people who were directly connected with the story, they all left and are mostly here in the UK. So they became refugees? Yes. Yes. For their own safety? Yes. 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 
And the last thing that I remember from that day was we walked out to the aircraft with somebody from the British Embassy, a diplomat, just in case we were stopped at the, on the tarmac. And I remember going through the last check and the official at the airport saying, is it true? Was it true? The killings? Yeah. So, oof, that's what it's like being a foreign correspondent. <laughs> but even in this changed world, you know, the post-internet world and all that, there still is a need yeah. for foreign correspondence, isn't there? That might have been yeah. um, the end of your time as one, but you moved on, didn't you? And you've uh, made myriad programmes since you're still very interested in those ex-Soviet states, aren't you, and those places, and you've made a lot of work around that, haven't you? And yes. that's, that's a sort of abiding interest, isn't it? Yes, absolutely it is. I think it's because, you know, think about the Soviet Union, this quite astonishing social political experiment that lasted through the 20th century, in our lifetime, stopped. And the implications and ramifications of that just go on and on and on. And I think, you know, you just... Every day brings some new extraordinary thing that uh, you find out um, or interesting people who've done interesting <laughs> things. Something I'd like to do is I'd like to do an oral history of the people who uh, made the Baikonur Space Station, for example. Right. That's never been recorded. There's so many stories, aren't there, from that part of the world that have never been recorded. There are. You and I have talked about it before, but you know we do experience propaganda here it's not like we're in a propaganda free zone we often don't hear very much positive about that part of the world do we? these are gossamer things people's memories and, and experiences and we have to catch them you know it, to be around at the time of the soviet union have a good memory of it that you'd probably be a middle-aged person by now you don't want to wait three thirty years and then just have doddering old people who can hardly remember you need to catch the freshness right now <laughs> um and i think you can just endlessly do that and uh, I make programmes about that all the time. Um, for example, I made a series of programmes with my colleague and friend Tim Huell about... Uh, we went around the Black Sea just talking to people. They're mostly former Soviet states. A wonderful series. Yeah, and what could be more exciting than doing that? And, you know, many, many, many other stories. So, Monica Whitlock, thank you for coming into this bureau, the Bureau of Lost Culture. Telling your stories. Great pleasure. Was it? Mm. Could Did... talk a lot more, actually. Well, maybe we should get you back. Well, I'd like to come back and play you some tapes. Perhaps. Now that sounds interesting. What's on them? Well, I've got hundreds and hundreds of tapes. Some of, <laughs> and they're just sort of uh, audio scenes from life. Mm. You know, some music and some markets and interviews and streets and very distinctive sounds that are Tashkent. Things like the, the the call of the milk churn in the morning. That you know, that's very special. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Monica. I hope that was what you wanted. <laughs> I think so. Yes. What do you think, listener? Was that what we wanted? Um, there she is, Monica Whitlock, documentary uh, programme maker, telling us about the life and times of 
a foreign correspondent from the years when she worked for the BBC. Monica's also, um, she's rather modest, she's trying to wheedle any information about her from her is quite tricky. She's written several books, including at least two uh, about that part of the world you might be interested in. It's Beyond the Oxus, the Central Asians, and there is The Land Beyond the River, the untold story of Central Asia. You can Google those. You can also go on the BBC website and put her name in. Uh, some of the amazing documentary programmes she's made for the BBC of the years will pop up. A lot of them concerned with the ex-Soviet empire, states and parts of the world. Amazing stuff. So there we have it. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, another episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. We'll be back next time with more rare audio, more stories from the other side. And I think we'll get Monica back with more of her amazing sounds of Central Asia. You can check us out at Solar Radio and all the major podcast providers. If you use Apple uh, Podcasts, it'd be great if you could leave a review. See you here next time. We're going to finish with another one of Monica's recordings. This is from the Uzbek Tashken Order, sometime around the turn of the millennium. I'm Stephen Cox. Thank <laughs> you.